Good morning, church. He is risen. Amen. Amen. I tell you, if you can't get excited on Easter Sunday, your excitement part of you is broken. This is the Super Bowl for Christians all over the planet. And, um, and it's the time we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was so excited last night. I was like a kid on Christmas Eve. And um, I couldn't sleep. Got up this morning, texted my whole family. Texted my whole family those words I spoke to you. He is risen. And, um, and then realized I sent that text to one of my kids' work numbers. And, um, but they'll enjoy that if they get that at work, I'm sure. Uh, we are celebrating the most incredible event in the history of humankind. When God took a human being who was his son, but God took a human being whose life was gone and raised him from the dead. If you've not already found it this morning in your worship folder, there's a listening guide, and it's a fill-in-the-blank listening guide. It's a way of tracking along with what God is saying as we study his word together this morning. And you'll see that the title of this morning's message is Real Faith in a Risen Jesus. Real Faith in a Risen Jesus. You know, it's very popular in this part of Arkansas to, um, to hunt. I've noticed this. And um, I went recently to, you know, the Band of Brothers, and they had a whole wall of trophies, the biggest trophies of the biggest bucks that were um, killed here in Arkansas, and, and they were so excited about that. Um, and yet, there's another kind of hunting that goes on, and it goes on particularly in this time of year, and I brought a trophy with me for you to see, a trophy Okay, there are people who hunt these things, and, um, but that's not the best one. I've got another one. Here's a trophy, okay? And, uh, and I got the best one of all, and this one would be like hanging on the wall in the back of the room. This is a trophy. Now, kids, there's no candy in this. That's all been evacuated, and um, so that's not there. This is just a mount, you know, you put on the wall. But I've really thought that we need to start a... Easter Egg Hunters chapter for Band of Brothers, uh, so that the recognition could be there. You know, there are people who are hunting their whole life for spiritual reality. And I've encountered them over the years, and maybe you're a person like that, and you've been hunting to know God or to know what's out there in your mind beyond what you can see and feel and touch. And when I've talked to someone like that, and they describe the process that they've gone through of hunting, 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 I'll ask them, have you ever met Jesus? And, and typically, a response I'll get, in North America anyway, a typical response will be, well, I tried that. I tried that. I tried that Christian thing. I tried that Baptist church thing. I tried that church thing. And it didn't work for me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, and sometimes I'll say it in my words, I mean, really? Really? Have you tried real faith in a risen Jesus? Real faith in a risen Jesus? Because it changed my life. But maybe you're a person like that, and you're wondering, how can I believe in something that happened so many years ago, and I've got no physical evidence that it actually took place? Is it possible to believe in a risen 
Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 24, we have an account of one of the appearances of Jesus Christ to an individual as well as a group. And there were multiple appearances of Jesus. And the Gospels, to, to put them all together, it's a pretty impressive array of the times that Jesus appeared after his resurrection. This is one of them, but this was to a man named Thomas, and Thomas really speaks to the question, can I believe in something that I have never seen myself? Verse 24, John 20, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. This is about a week later. And Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the mist and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Is it possible to believe in a risen Jesus? and not have seen a risen Jesus. Thomas struggled to believe, and maybe you're a person like that, or you know a person like that. And that's what we want to deal with this morning. Here's our question. How can you believe in a risen Jesus? Number one, study the ancient witnesses of the resurrection. Study the ancient witnesses of the resurrection. A couple of months ago, a film was released called Risen, and one of the things that made that film special is they went to extra lengths to show some of the details recorded for us in the written Gospels, the ancient evidences for the resurrection. And an example of that I want you to see right now. Salve, prefect. You smell of meat, a feast. There's your solution. Burn him in public. God forbids cremation. He also forbids labor on the Sabbath, and yet here you are. Trivia. Burn him, the crucified Nazarene. Why? He's business unfinished. The man's dead, Caiaphas. His followers are in hiding. He's no longer a threat to your monopoly on piety. But still a threat, Prefect. While alive, that deceiver said he would rise again after three days. He foretold it. We request that the sepulcher be sealed, lest his disciples come in the night, steal the body, and say that he is risen from death. That would cause more unrest in this city than all his blasphemies combined. You have your own guide. Secure it yourself. My words exactly. To which I replied, we need a Roman seal. This must be seen as the impartial will of the prefect. And not yours. We seek only what Caesar seeks. Peace in Jerusalem. 
peace in Judea, which you will lose if this body vanishes. Ends my summoning. Just see to it. Satisfy yourself. And details like that are all over the gospel accounts of the burial and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. They took the stone and the Romans... Uh, seemed to understand, and the religious leaders seemed to understand even better than his disciples, what Jesus had said was going to happen. And so they sealed the tomb. They put a rope around the edge. They, they put hot wax on it. They put a Roman seal on it. And that was broken only on penalty of death. And so there are all kinds of markers like that in the Scripture that show the, um, the, uh, the practical details surrounding the burial of Jesus. And uh, in the scripture, for example, Matthew 27, illustrating this, Matthew 27, verse 62, it says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that that tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night. And steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. You know, there at least, when I think about the resurrection personally, uh, I became a believer late in high school and I had lots of questions about the resurrection, about all kinds of, of um, events in Scripture. There were four particular facts about the resurrection that helped me. And if you're a person who wants to look at the ancient evidence, here's some things to consider. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Over and over and over again, they preached that Jesus was risen. That could have stopped by just producing a body, but they never did. The tomb was empty. There was a second fact. The change in the disciples. The change in the disciples. When you read the gospel accounts, it's not very flattering. They not only did not understand that Jesus said he was going to rise, but the Bible says they were afraid. They were in hiding behind locked doors. They were frightened. They wanted to preserve their life. And they didn't know what to do. They were confused. And they certainly didn't have a message to preach. Now, something happened to those men. And... and the hundreds of people that saw Jesus, and that they became people who were ready to preach and die on this fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And they all went to the 12 disciples. Uh, Judas took his own life. Uh, John died in exile, but 10 of the 12 historically died a martyr's death. And if it was a lie, 
you would think somebody at some point would have cracked and said, we made it up. We stole his body, but they never did. And so you had this radical transformation in the lives of the disciples. You also had the reported appearances of Jesus. And these are remarkable in a lot of different ways. You know, sometimes people can say, well, I saw somebody in a vision. And yet there were multiple people that saw Jesus at once. The Bible says up to 500 people saw him at one time. On the day of his resurrection and for 40 days following, he appeared to his followers. And, and what's remarkable about that is it wasn't the kind of thing, if you were making it up, and uh, when you read some mythological account, it's not the kind of thing you would expect where somebody would say, well, he came into the room and he was glowing and he had this, you know, ethereal look to him and he looked like a ghost and he just kind of walked right through me and all that. Jesus wasn't that way. He did walk through walls, but then he said, touch me. He ate food. He even cooked a meal. He, um, he said he, there were times where people recognized him. There were times where people didn't recognize him. He was different, but he wasn't weird. He was different, and people saw that, and that's what they talked about, and that's what they reported, and some of those elements are not things you would expect if people were making it up. And the fourth thing about the resurrection I want you to know is that there's this incredible, rapid growth of Christianity that follows unlike any other period except maybe today in the history of the church. The church grew roughly 40% every 10 years for 300 years. From a group of maybe 1,000 people, and then Pentecost 3,000, then up to 5,000, the book of Acts says, and then it sort of quits counting. You have estimated between 25 and 35 million Christians by the time you get to 312 A.D., 300 years later you have nearly 10 to 12% of the world population has put their trust in Christ. And, and so there was a power to this message. And there was a very real and dynamic power that happened when, when people heard it. And so have you considered the ancient evidence? You know, production of a body would have stopped all of this. I'd encourage you, if you've never done so, to read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I like John. And I'd encourage you to read it for yourself. Not what somebody else has told you about Jesus Christ, but read about him for yourself. Millions of people have come to faith in Jesus by reading the ancient evidence of his life. There's a second thing. How can you believe in a risen Jesus? Speak to Christ followers about their personal experiences with Jesus. Talk to people who've heard him. Talk to people who have met him. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen Jesus. Now if you're intellectually honest and you're Thomas, you should have said, You've seen Jesus? Talk to me about that. What was he like? What did he say? And, and he doesn't even enter into that discussion. He just sort of shuts it down. He's not talking to them. And I'm saying to you, don't all, not only read the Scripture, but talk to people that you know that say they believe in Jesus, they trust Jesus. Talk to them about what they have learned. Talk about what they have experienced. All over the world today, at a rate of approximately 2,500 to 3,500 people an hour, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He is changing lives. And they all have a story to tell. 
Now, what is it that, about Jesus that so radically changes people's lives? Well, the first thing is that he forgives them for their sin. He, when he dies on the cross, the Bible says he was dying for their sin. Do you feel the weight of your own sin in your life? How many times you've messed up? How many things you have done wrong? How many people you have hurt? How many mistakes you have made? If you were to come to Jesus today and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I'm putting my trust in you that what you did for me on the cross can forgive my sins. And so I'm giving you my life, Lord. I'm putting my trust in you. And then if you did that and you were to die tonight or tomorrow and you would stand before God, and, um, and he would receive you, and you would say, God, by the way, that, that sin I committed the other day, that sin I did yesterday, and God would say, I don't know what you're talking about. You see, he cancels sin through Christ. That sin is gone. He carries our sins away. On the cross, he truly dealt with the sin issue. And so if you've made mistakes, if you have hurt people, if you, whatever it is, you go before God, God, I you remember this thing that I did? He says, no, I don't remember. And the Bible actually teaches that he chooses not to remember our sins when we have trusted Jesus. Becoming guilt-free, becoming released from the weight of your sin can change your life. I'll tell you something else that happens. He not only forgives people for their sin, he also gives them the power to overcome that sin. He gives them the ability to change. This resurrected Jesus actually comes to live inside a person. And when he does that through his Holy Spirit, you have a new ability, a new capacity to say no to sin, to stop feeding the sin monster in your life, and to begin to live a different kind of life. And the Bible says that there is, consequently, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, it says in Romans 8. No condemnation. How can he, how can he do that? How can he forgive? How can he come in and give us this power? There's no condemnation. You know, the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross, it is finished. Those three English words are capturing a single Greek word. And that single Greek word really, literally, means to bring something to an end, to bring something to a conclusion but it was the same word that they would write over a bill that had been paid or a prison sentence that had been commuted. They would write over that, paid in full. Paid in full. When you put your trust in Jesus, he is paying for your sins in full. Nothing remains. Nothing is left. I want you to hear the story of a man whose life was changed by Jesus Christ. Some of you all will recognize this person. He's, he's well known. But listen to this man share how Jesus changed his life. There's probably not a lot of guys that need the Lord any worse than a race car driver does. The car is like a beast. It wants to go one way and you're trying to wheel it around a, a high bank turn. Talking about a 3,500-pound stock car going around a racetrack at over 200 miles an hour. I mean, it gets tight. It gets intense. As long as everybody minds their manners, it all works. I mean, you can have 43 cars in a watt. 
going around a racetrack inches apart. You're touching the other guy, and he's touching you. Somebody's bumping you in the back end, slamming into your door. And you say, whoa, whoa, don't do that. That's what happened to me in 1983. I was coming off the fourth turn of Daytona in a tight pack. And uh, I got nerfed. I got hit from behind. Car spun, went into the inside wall, wham! You always talk about timing when you're an athlete and being in the right place at the right time on the right team. And all those things came together for me in 1981. 81 and 82 in NASCAR, those two years back to back, I won 24 races uh, and two championships. I don't think anybody's had two years uh, with that kind of success um, ever. I was on the top of my game. We were unbeatable. Uh, we'd roll into town and we'd check in a hotel and they'd say, oh, are you here for the show? And I'd say, no, ma'am, I am the show. Athletes in general are selfish. It's part of the culture. People call it cocky, uh, arrogance, uh, all, those, all those adjectives that describe a, a, a successful athlete. But you have to be that way to stay on top. At least, at least in that moment, that's what you think. Richard Petty used to say about me, he said, that boy might win a lot of races and he may make a lot of money, but he'll never be NASCAR's most popular driver. And I, I, I totally agreed at the time. Fans hated me. They booed me. People wore shirts that said, anybody but Waltrip. They threw beer cans and chicken bones at me. I'd say, yeah, bring it on, you know, it's not bothering me, but it bothered me a lot because I didn't want people to feel that way about me and I felt like they didn't know me that well. It was that time in my life uh, when I met a, a minister, Dr. Cortez Cooper. He's questioning my faith. He's asking me, you know, are, do, you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior? And I said, I said, well, I just don't know if I'm ready for that or not. I'd always told my wife uh, that you can't. You can't get hurt in one of these People things. People do something stupid. They're not as smart as I am. They're not as good at drivers as I am. Coming off turn four, and I got nerfed. Spun back, went into the inside wall, bam! And it knocked me out. You always talk about timing when you're an athlete. Dr. Cooper, the accident, uh, the success I'd had in the prior two years, uh, things just started kind of snowballing in my mind. I said, you know, I've had all this success. I've done all these things. I'm, I'm on the top of my game, but you know what? I, 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 could, I, could have been, I could have been dead. I raced at Richmond. I had no recollection of being there. I raced at Rockingham the next week. Had no recollection of being there. I said, honey, where have I been for the last couple of weeks? It wasn't until the third week after the wreck at Daytona uh, that I finally woke up. When I finally came to and I realized what had happened to me, it scared the hell out of me. I started searching for the Lord. On a July night, hot, no air conditioning, sweating, crying in the hallway, on my knees, Dr. Cooper, Stevie and I, and uh, he prayed that, uh, that the Lord would come into my life and, and he did. And uh, 1983 was an incredible year. Wasn't so great on the racetrack, but personally, uh, in my relationships with my wife and with everybody else, uh, my life took a huge turn. 
and that's something I learned. If you don't own success, you wouldn't have success if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. He owns success. The difference in him and you is he wants to share it. You want to keep it. You want to keep it for yourself. It's all about me, what I can do, what I've done. With Jesus, it's all about what he has done. You can do all things through him, not with him, not when you get finished, maybe recognize him. You can do all things through him. You know what my reward was? It wasn't another championship. It was, finally, that people said, we like DW. He's a great guy, he's had a great career, and I was voted most popular driver in 1989 and 1990. In my mind and in my life, uh, it, was a, it was almost like a, a reward for all those things that I'd left behind and where I was headed. When you learn to put him first in everything you do and give him the glory and uh, the praise, your life's gonna be a whole lot better off. I'm Darrell Waltrip, and I am second. And how many of us could share a story of how Jesus changed our hearts from being a, a certain kind of person to an entirely new kind of person? How can you believe in a risen Jesus? Read the ancient stories. Talk to people whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. But there's a third thing you can do. Confront your inner doubts and struggles to believe. Confront your inner doubts and struggles to believe. You say, well, Pastor, what if I still have doubts? I've looked at the evidence. I've listened to people's stories, but I still can't believe. What did you do then? Well, Thomas was kind of like that. In John 20, verse 25, so he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of his, in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Have you ever said anything like that? I will not believe. You know, there's, there are problems with taking that position. You see, you do believe. It's a matter of what you believe in. You believe in something. And typically, the Bible does talk about people who are atheists. It does talk about people who don't believe in the, in the Bible. But typically, they are believing in something else. And there's this contest that comes up between the one true God, who says you can have no other gods before me, and false gods. You see it on Mount Carmel with Elijah, and all these idolaters are there, and he calls on God to show himself strong. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? You say, well, pastor, I'm an educated person, and, um, and I, don't, I don't believe in idols, and I don't believe in false gods. I believe in, in uh, science and reason and testing things out and things you can see and touch and things that you can prove. Well, see, that's where your faith is. And so you have faith. It's a matter of where you have put your faith. And you have put your faith in that, and you have not put your faith in Christ. To trust Jesus Christ is to take your faith away from all those other things and to transfer that faith into Christ. And the problem is not that you can't believe, because you do. You believe in something. The problem is not that you can't believe. It's that you won't believe. You caught what Thomas said, didn't you? He said, unless I could do these things, I could see his hands, I could touch his hands, put my hand on his side. What does he say? I will not believe. Not that he cannot. He says, I will not. Believing is a choice. It's not a special ability that some spiritual people have. It's not a feeling. It is a choice. 
And then finally, number four, how can you believe in a risen Jesus? Well, read those stories, listen to those stories, confront your doubts, realize that faith is a choice. And then number four, follow the evidence to a relationship with Jesus, not a religion about Jesus. Two very, very different things. After Jesus appeared to Thomas in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas is believing because he sees. Is it possible for you and I to believe and never have seen the risen Jesus? Well, I want you to notice uh, there was another account that occurred earlier in this chapter where Peter and John ran to the tomb. They heard that the body was gone. They ran to the tomb. In verses 4 to 8 of John 20, the Bible says, so they both ran together. And the other disciple, and this is the apostle John, the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. He's the one writing this story. And he stooped down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. So John runs up to the opening of the tomb, and he's just standing there. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths, the burial wrappings. They saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not, um, following him, and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So Peter sees this, and nothing is said about Peter believing Now, he's going to. Later that day, he has a meeting with Jesus. But at this moment, he sees that the body is gone. But we don't see anything about faith. Now, look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, and look at that, and believed, and believed. He never saw the risen Jesus. Now, he did later, but he'd already believed. He already knew what happened. He was already aware of it. He's writing this story, and he writes the words that Jesus spoke to Thomas. You know, blessed are you. You, you, You've seen and you believe, but blessed are the people who have not seen and have believed. Peter can get no further than what he sees. John sees the evidence, but he looks past the evidence. And that's what you and I have to do. I can read the Bible till I have it memorized. I can listen to people's stories of how Jesus has changed their lives until I can hear no more. I can confront my doubts and be willing to trust Jesus. But at some point, i got to look at all that data. i got to look at that information. And I've got to look beyond that to what or who does it point to. You know, a compass is not a destination. A compass is something that points you to your destination. And the scripture and the truth and the history and all the evidence, all of that is designed to point you to Jesus. To point you to a person. And, um, and Peter would write later as he thought about this. And he was there when Jesus spoke to Thomas. He was there when um, Jesus said, blessed are those who don't believe and still believe. I mean, who don't see and yet believe. Years later in 1 Peter 1.8, listen to what Peter would write. To these Christians who never saw Jesus, though you have not seen him, 
you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Their faith was not in a library of evidence. It was not even in the testimonies of others. It was not faith in a major religion. It was faith in a Jesus that they had fallen madly in love with and they had learned to have a relationship with him. And it changed their lives. So when the evidence was in, Thomas met Jesus in a brand new way. And when he saw the risen Jesus, he had walked with him for three years, but nothing was ever going to be the same. And, and he says this in verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Here's the bottom line. Believing in a risen Jesus always results in a deeply personal confession of Jesus. We've talked about how it's possible to believe in a risen Jesus, real faith in a risen Jesus. Well, there is evidence in human history and in human hearts. We've learned that belief is a choice. It's not just a gift that some special people have. And the goal of my believing is ultimately a relationship with a living God, with Jesus Christ. And that relationship begins in this new way like it did for Thomas, by fully and completely surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Are you ready to do that? You know, everything that this church and millions of other gatherings of Christians are doing today around the world is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not only do we want to celebrate his resurrection, we want to tell that story over and over and over again. I was walking in today and somebody said, man, I've been praying for you. You're going to have to do this three times. You and the choir, we have to do that three times. I've been praying for you. I said, I could do it five times. <laughs> I could do it ten times. Why? Because you never get tired of talking about this amazing thing that Jesus did for you and me. You know, the Bible says in Romans 8, 32, that God spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. One of the, the first verses we teach children at Wynn Baptist Church is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Are you ready to trust him? Are you ready to trust him? A prayer for salvation would go something like this. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. We're going to have a time of response in a moment, but I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, there are, there are dozens of people here that already know him. And if you would like to know him, you could come to him just like Thomas did, and you could say, my Lord and my God, I know that you died for me, and I am so thankful today, Lord, that you did. Thank you for dying for my sins on the cross. You are my God, and I am reaching out to you. I'm calling on your name, and I'm surrendering my life to you. I need your forgiveness. I need that power to change that the pastor talked about. And so, Lord, based on your word, that anyone who believes
would not perish but would have everlasting life. Lord, I choose to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And Father, I thank you for hearing my cry. Lord, you have said in your word that everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Would you look up here? If you prayed that prayer, would you, like Thomas, confess it before others? Would you come and say, I have trusted Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday, 2016, I have trusted Christ. Just like those two little ones in the baptistry trusted Jesus, and they followed him, and they're following him now with their lives. Just as others have trusted him, this could be the day you begin and start a new life. Real faith in a risen Jesus.